Go and grab your Bibles with me this morning, church, and uh, open up to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. And let's bow together. <laughs> let's bow together again for a word of prayer. Lord, we're so thankful this morning again for what you've done for us through the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we can rely on his precious blood and through his blood we don't have to fear being banished. Lord, we know that if we stood before you on our own, counting on our own merits, that we deserve nothing but banishment. We deserve to be cast out. We have no standing before you, but thank you for a Savior who, as though I was accursed and left alone and now through faith, we stand before you as if we were Christ, embraced and welcomed home. And so, Lord, we cling to Christ. We're thankful for what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, we pray that we would see more clearly as your people the implications, the consequences of being in Christ through your word this morning. So we ask for your help in that. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 together. Um, if you've been here, you know by now that this is a letter that, that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, and he was writing to a group of people he had never actually seen before. Paul hadn't laid his eyes on most of these people. This was a church that Paul didn't plant. It was planted by a friend of Paul's named Epaphras. But Paul had gotten word through the grapevine that things were going very well. The gospel had taken root. People had heard it and believed. Fruit was beginning to spring up in the city of Colossae. Idols were being rejected. Christ was being embraced. A lot of good things were going on in this city. The, the light of the gospel had been turned, turned on in the, in the Lycus Valley. But as often happens when lights are turned on, bugs begin to gather. And that's what you see throughout the New Testament. Every time in the New Testament that the gospel light gets turned on in a new dark area, it won't be long before the bugs of false teaching start to circle. And that's what had happened in this city. The gospel had been turned on, people had believed, and false teachers had started seeping into this area. And the particular brand of false teaching that they were dealing with was they were teaching the people that they needed something more than Jesus. Jesus was great, they would say, but Jesus is not enough. You need, you need extra experiences. You need to apply a few extra rules. And you need to add this other stuff if you're going to know the, the real fullness and depth of the spiritual life. And so Paul is writing this letter to, to cut the legs out from underneath all of that. Paul's writing this letter to remind them that through faith in Jesus, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. So, so Jesus isn't just one of the rungs on the ladder to spiritual life. Jesus is the essence of spiritual life. He's the source of spiritual life. He's the sustainer of spiritual life. And now in Colossians 3, Paul is especially talking about our walk with Christ. This is a chapter that's mainly about our sanctification. Paul's trying to describe what it now looks like for us in our day-to-day -day lives to follow Jesus. You might remember from last week, Paul said that when you believed, the old you died. And so now the Christian life, in part, is putting to death all the practices that went along with your old life. Okay, There, there are lots of activities that went along with a life not lived under Jesus that don't fit with you now. So Paul says you got to put to death 
sexual immorality and idolatry and covetousness. Another way he describes it is Paul says, it's like you have put off the old man. It's like you've changed teams. So it's important you not keep wearing the uniform that went with your old team. There are some behaviors that went with the team you used to play for. Anger and wrath and malice. And Paul says those don't fit who you are anymore. So you have to put off all those practices that went with the old man. Well, one of the things that, that radically changes with our new life in Christ, and that's what Paul's going to talk about this morning, is we begin to see people differently. So a lot of Colossians 3 is going to be about our new relationships as Christians. So when you become a follower of Jesus, it carries massive implications on how we think about family life. When you become a follower of Jesus, it carries massive implications on how we think about work life. But that's not where Paul starts. The first point Paul wants to make is that being a follower of Jesus carries massive implications on how we think about church life. And this is what, what Paul says and where Paul starts it in so many of his letters that he writes to churches. Because being a follower of Jesus has massive implications on how you see and treat other people. It has massive implications on your relationships. So let, let me just push into that a little bit. I hope you don't see your Christianity as, as mainly just this personal, private, isolated relationship between you and God. Because Christianity is so much bigger than that. It's so much better than that. If your faith is in Jesus, not only do you have a new father, you also have a new family. This is a point that Jesus makes often in the Gospels. Let me read you just one example. This is Jesus speaking in Mark chapter 10. He's responding to Peter. It says, then Peter began to say to him, see, we've left all and followed you. It's like Peter saying, Lord, look at all we've given up to follow you. And Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, yeah, it might cost you everything to follow me. But if you follow me, you're going to get in this life, you're going to get a hundredfold more brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. What is he talking about? He's talking about the family of God. When you become a follower of Jesus, you enter into a brand new family. And a big part of living out the Christian life has to do with seeing each other like family and treating each other like family. So that's what Paul's going to explain for us this morning. So if your Bible's open to Colossians 3, we covered down through verse 10 last week, but I want to start back up in verse 9 just to get a, a run and start into our passage this morning. So Colossians 3, beginning in verse 9, and we'll go down through verse 14, where Paul writes... Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who's being renewed in knowledge 
according to the image of Him who created Him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. All right, we're going to look at this under three headings. Here's the first one. Number one, I want to see your new people. Your new people. So we looked at verses 9 and 10 last week. And the gist of those verses is that, that you have now put off the old man who was joined to Adam and ruled by sin. And you as a Christian have now put on the new man who is, who is ruled by Christ and under grace. So you've changed positions now through your faith in Jesus. We're new people who are being renewed, Paul says. Well, new people who are being renewed now see other people in new ways. Let me, let me get into it this way. I don't think it would take a whole lot to convince you that we live in a, a deeply divided world. You recognize that, right? If, if you've turned on the TV over the last eight days, you've seen firsthand examples of the deep ethnic divisions that exist in our world. You've seen probably pictures or videos of uh, Palestinians parading the bodies of dead Israelis through the streets of, of cities. There are deep racial divisions. There are places where you wouldn't be included or you wouldn't be welcomed based on your skin color. There are, there are deep class divisions. There are some people who judge you, they assign you value based on what your net worth is, right? We're, we're a world that tends to divide. And by the way, the reason we do that is because there is this deep longing in the human heart to know who I belong to. I want to know who my people are. What group do I belong to? Because in large part, we find our identity based on our groups. This is why if you drop a teenager in a brand new school, within a week, they're going to pick a group. I'm going to be with the, the choir group or the band group or the athlete group or the theater group. We're going to find a group because we look for groups to help define who we are. Right? That, that's part. This is why I think one of the things that draws people to things like um, uh, 23andMe or Ancestry.com, we want to know who our people are. Who do I belong to? And then what we tend to do is we find ways that we think make our group better than all the other groups. So it's like we come up with our own little caste system. So in our group, we're going to evaluate everybody by education level. Or we're going to evaluate everybody by skin color. Or we're going to evaluate everybody by uh, net worth, by how much money you make. And, and then we kind of group everybody in some category. We define ourselves by our group and we see everybody else in these, in these different groups. Well, that's what Paul's talking about in, in verse 11. Paul's highlighting some of the different ways that they divided in his world. These are, these are the ways that they were tempted to define themselves and the ways they were tempted to define others. So look at verse 11 again, where Paul says that in Christ now there is neither Greek nor Jew. That, that was the main ethnic division in Paul's day. There were Jews and Greeks. 
slash Gentiles. And Greeks and Jews did not socialize. In fact, there were some Jews who taught that the whole reason God had made Gentiles was he needed firewood for hell. And that's what Gentiles existed for. Gentiles were unclean. Jews didn't eat meals with Gentiles. Jews did not go into Gentile homes. In fact, what Jews would do is, is if they had to leave the nation of Israel to do business, when they would come back home, before they would cross over into the border of Israel, they would take their robe and they would, they would brush all of the dust off of their robe because they didn't want to bring any of that filthy Gentile dirt back into the promised land with them. Okay, there were deep animosities between Jews and Greeks. And Greeks didn't view Jews any more kindly. They saw Jews as the most backward, most restrictive people in the world. So there were divisions ethnically between Jews and Greeks. Then Paul mentions circumcised and uncircumcised. Circumcision, of course, was was the mark for the Jews of their religious rigor. It was the mark of the Jews that they were the covenant people of God. And surely, people who had that mark were superior to all other groups. That was a religious division. And then Paul mentions barbarians. Barbarians were people who lived outside of the Roman Empire. So everybody in the Roman Empire, that would include Jews and Greeks, Jews and Greeks inside the Roman Empire looked down on barbarians outside of the Roman Empire. They assumed all of the tribes outside of the Roman Empire were uncivilized because they couldn't speak Greek. And their thought process was every civilized person can speak Greek. In fact, that's where the name barbarian comes from. The, they thought that they, their talk, the speech of all these other groups sounded like nonsense. It sounded to them like they were going bar, 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 bar. That's what their speech sounded like. And so they called them barbarians. That's where the name came from. Just the word barbarian was meant to be an insult about how they talked. It was making fun of them for their speech. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with an uncivilized barbarian. And then Scythians were the worst of the barbarians. That was the people group outside of the Roman Empire that came from from way up north of the Black Sea. And they were seen as the most violent, bloodthirsty people around. There were stories about how they would drink the blood of their enemies. Josephus said that the, the Scythians were hardly any better than wild animals. Nobody wants to have anything to do with the Scythian, even the barbarians. And then he mentions slave and free. Slave and free was the main class division in Paul's day. Roughly one out of every five people in the Roman Empire was a slave. And all the free people thought they were far superior to slaves. Slaves weren't viewed as people, in fact. Slaves were were viewed as property. The same as a a shovel or a rake. They They were tools, not people. And so whereas free people might come into contact with slaves, there was no socializing between free and slaves. So the world that Paul lived in was a deeply divided world. You got your identity from your ethnic group, you got your identity from the class that you were part of, and that's where you stayed. You only socialized with people who were in your circle, in your class. But Paul says this new community that you've been brought into This new community of people who have died to the old self to follow Jesus, none of that stuff matters now. Paul's saying you've died to that old way of measuring people. You've died to all of those old hostilities. 
All of that stuff that used to define you and defined you and how you viewed people has been nailed with Jesus to the cross. So what matters now among God's people? Well, do you see that last phrase of verse 11? Here's all that matters for us now. Last phrase of verse 11. But Christ is all and in all. In other words, Paul's saying all that matters to us now is Jesus. And Jesus is in all of his people. Every single person who becomes a follower of Jesus is indwelt by Jesus through faith. That's true for you no matter what your income level is. That's true for you no matter what your skin color is. That's true for you no matter what your nationality is. Everyone who becomes a follower of Jesus is indwelt by the same Lord. I have have the same Jesus in me that you have in you. And so it's like Paul saying, if I love Jesus and Jesus is in you, how could I not welcome you? If I love Jesus and Jesus is in you, how could I not embrace you as a brother or sister? So what matters to us now is Christ is in all. But that first phrase, not only does Paul say he's in all, Paul says Christ is all. This is, this is the key central worldview issue now for us as Christians. Everything for us is now about Jesus. Everything for us now centers on Jesus. This is Paul saying in Philippians 1, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Or this is Paul in Philippians 3. Do you remember that long uh, statement Paul makes in Philippians 3 where he talks about all the things in life that he once valued, all the things in life that he once thought were so important. Paul says... All of that stuff now is counted as loss compared to the value of knowing Jesus. Jesus is everything to us now. So that means that old grid that we used to use to measure people, that old grid that we used to use to define ourselves and rank all the other groups, that old grid is blown up through faith in Christ. Here's the way John Piper described it. He said, Once we boasted in our culture and our intellect like the Greeks, but now Christ is all. Once we gloried in our tradition and our religious rigor like the Jews, but now Christ is all. Once we reveled in not being like the barbarians and the shabby Scythians, but now Christ is all. Or once we resented not being the culture, not being rigorous, not having the cultured pedigree, not having wealth and refinement, But now, Christ is all. Once we tried to find our significance and our happiness and our security in what we were in relation to other people or in distinction from other people. But then that old self died, a new self was born, and the core essence of the new self is that it knows and feels Christ is all. So listen, do you see how, I mentioned earlier how innate to the human heart is this longing to know who do I belong to? Do, do you see how that question is answered in the gospel? When you come to know Christ, when you come to put your faith in Jesus, you are made part of a brand new family. I, I should just say it this way. Christian, this is where you belong. Christian, these are your people now. This is who you are. That doesn't mean you stop being uh, male, or you stop being Hispanic, or you sp- stop being 
um, whatever else, wealthy, or you stop being anything. What it means is all of that stuff now becomes irrelevant compared to this. All of that other stuff becomes secondary to the main thing. The main thing is Jesus. The main thing is Jesus is in his people. The main thing is Jesus is life to us. And so Paul is saying this defines where we belong now. You've been made a new person and you've been made part of a new community. And so the call is we're to live this way. Let me just say, we should ache to live this way in church life. We should ache to see this lived out in our church body. That there are people in our church family, listen now, there are people in our church family who have lost family relationships in order to follow Jesus. There are people in our church family who are alone, who have had spouses die, who have had, who have had children move away. There, there are, are married couples in our church family who have no other Christians in their family, no other couples in their church family, no heritage of Christian marriages in their church family where none of that exists. And what we want to do is we want to live out the reality of what Jesus said earlier, that in the family of God, here are new brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, which means we have to work to fold people into our lives. Do you get that? If we're going to live what Paul's saying, we got to work to fold people into our lives. And that's not something that mainly happens here on Sunday mornings. That's something that happens out there. It happens in our homes. It happens over the lunch table. Listen, you, you might have a wonderful family. You might have a, a solid Christian family that goes back generations. And if you have that, you should thank God for that. But that's not enough. What about the new family of brothers and sisters that the Lord has placed you? And listen, Paul doesn't say blood is all. Paul says Christ is all. Paul says these are the relationships now that are the main defining relationships in our lives. This is why hospitality is held up as such an important virtue in the Christian life. So that we invite each other into our homes. We sit down at the table. We share meals. We hold up the hurting. We help the lonely. We, we want to do everything we can to make sure that everyone who the Lord places in this church body gets woven into the family. And it takes work to do that. It takes hard work. There's a, there's a blanket, a quilt, that we have at our house that um, actually got left at our house. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to my parents. And on one of their trips over, they left it, left it at our house. But um, it's, a, it's a quilt that was given to my dad years ago by a church that he was serving in at the time. And what they had done is that they had had little squares and every family in the church would come out and they would write their family name on the square and write, write some kind of Bible verse and maybe some sort of little message. And then ladies in the church took all of those squares and they, they stitched it, whatever was written in the square. And then they took all those little squares and they sewed them all together and they made a quilt. And so you look at the quilt and you see all the different blocks of families. Here's the, here's the Blasies and here's the Rainwaters and here's the Roberts. And it, it's a wonderful, it was a wonderful keepsake. But it gives such, a, such an accurate picture of how so many of us think about church life. We think of church life as it being my little family just kind of sews on to the church. But that's not what church life is. It's not, 
It is not my family attaching on to the church and staying in our little square. It is my family opening up to the church. It's my family working to invite people in. Listen, it's my family living out what Jesus said in Mark 10. Hey, are you lonely? Do you need brothers and sisters? Come on in. Do you need spiritual parents who can provide some guidance? Come on in. We're opening our houses and we're opening our lives and we're opening our families so that we actually treat people the way Paul's calling for here. We are not mainly defined now by blood. We're not mainly defined by nationality. We're not mainly defined by race. We're defined. We are defined by what God has done for us through Christ. And that also defines our relationships with each other. So Paul is urging these folks to see each other in light of their salvation. Christian, not only have you been made new, you have been brought into a new family. So live that way. Here's the second thing. Number two, I want to see your new identity. So Paul's in verse, in verse 12, Paul's about to tell us how we're to treat one another as family. But it's interesting that before he tells us how we're to treat each other, he starts verse 12 by reminding us of who we are. It's like Paul believes we need to be reminded of who we are one more time if we're going to treat each other the right way. That There's an old story about Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria sat on the throne of England for over 60 years. And the story is that when she was a little girl, she was hard-headed and cantankerous. She didn't take too well to all the etiquette that went along with the, with the royal court of England until one day, she wrote in her memoirs, changed all that. One day when she was 10 years old, the family tutor was teaching her a history lesson about all the different kings and queens of England. And this family tutor unrolled a, like a family tree, a genealogical record of all British royalty. And this tutor started with his finger tracing down the names of all the different kings and queens until he got to the very bottom of that chart and he stopped his finger on a name. And it was her name. It was Victoria. And the tutor said, and that, my lady, is you. And he was making the point to her, looking at this chart, that she was the next one in line for the throne. And Queen Victoria wrote years later that that was a turning point in her life because she realized that day that she was not a common English girl. She was royalty. She was, she was destined for the throne, so she needed to start living that way. Who she was, in other words, would have a profound impact on how she lived. Well, that's what Paul's doing with the opening words of verse 12. He's reminding us of who we are. Notice three titles that he gives us in verse 12. Therefore, here's the first one, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Three things Paul says about your identity. Number one, believer, you are the elect of God. That means you were chosen by God. But wait, I thought I chose God. I repented and believed. Yes, you did. You did. But Paul is peeling the onion back a layer. The reason why you chose him is because he first chose you. His choice predates your choice. From eternity past, 
God knew you, He chose you, and He placed His sovereign love on you. Do you understand the security that gives you as a believer in Christ? This is, Stephen read it earlier, this is Paul saying in Romans 8, Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. If God chose you and sent His Son to die for you and in time awakened you and made you alive and called you to Himself, do you see how solid your footing is in the family of God? You are not some Johnny-come-lately. You're not some party crasher who managed to slip in the back door of the kingdom of God. You are here because God wanted you here. And I know there are lots of people who resist that. There, there are lots of churches who avoid that like the plague. But the Bible doesn't. And the Bible doesn't talk about it in hushed tones. It's not hidden away in some secret code where if you take every seventh word and uh, seventh letter in Revelation, it spells election. It's right there on the surface in plain view because God wants us to see it. And it's not just some heady theology that's meant to stretch our thinking. It's meant to affect how we live. That's why Paul mentions it here. Think about it now. Paul is about to explain how we're supposed to treat one another in the family of God. And he thinks understanding our election will help us do that better. Paul thinks that we'll, we'll love each other better as the family of God if we'll all understand how it is we came to be part of the family of God. So when we avoid this, we're, we're not just avoiding a theological word, we're avoiding something that is meant to root us in God's grace and anchor us to God's family and it's meant to blow away any feelings of pride or superiority. You are not here, listen to me, you are not here because you are the best and the brightest. You're here because God graciously chose you. Paul says you are the elect of God. The second word that he uses to define us is holy. The word holy means to be set apart by God. God has set you apart. And in one sense, you are already holy. Positionally speaking, God sees you in the righteousness of Jesus. You are holy positionally. Practically, God is making you more holy. Every day, if your faith is in Jesus, He's conforming you into the image of His Son. And then as Christians, we live with the promise that one day we're going to be perfectly holy. One day we're going to see God and every last vestige of sin is going to fall away but the big point of this is, listen, Christian, you now belong to God. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You are His now. God has set you apart for Himself, and He has set you apart for His own purposes. And then that third word, you are beloved. Isn't that a precious word to hear? You are not, you are not trying to win God's love. You are not trying to earn God's love. You are not trying to keep God's love. You are God's beloved. Now, based on that, based on who you are in Christ, elect of God, holy, beloved, Paul's now going to tell you how you're supposed to live. So here's the third part. Number three, I want to see your new affections. 
your new affections. Paul, let's just go and read it. Look at verse 12 again. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Do you get the put-on language? We saw something very similar last week where Paul is using this uh, clothing metaphor where he's describing certain attitudes and behaviors we're supposed to to put off as Christians and certain attitudes and behaviors we're supposed to put on as Christians. A lot of commentators think that this is related to how they would do baptisms in the early church. When you were professing your faith publicly in baptism, you would go to the baptistry, you would take off your old robe, you would get baptized, and on the other side of baptism, they would give you a, a new robe you would put on. All that was meant to be symbolic. Well, and Paul has already in Colossians described salvation in terms of a spiritual baptism. You've been immersed into Jesus. And it's very likely that he's using the baptism language they were familiar with. All these folks had been baptized. They had been immersed. They had taken off their old robe, put on a new robe. And Paul is saying, that's what should be happening spiritually. You've been immersed into Jesus. So there are certain behaviors that need to be taken off. And there are certain behaviors that need to be put on. So what are the behaviors that need to be put on? Well, the first one Paul mentions is the New King James words it, tender mercies. Now, if you have an old King James, anybody in here have old King James? It words it, bowels of mercies. And it's actually, it's actually the literal way of saying it because in Paul's day, they thought your bowels was the seat of your emotions. So your heart, we talk about our heart as being the emotional center. They saw your emotional center as your gut. And they thought that because that's where you feel deep emotions, right? We, we still use that language sometimes. We'll say, my stomach is in knots. When you feel something deeply, you feel it in your gut. So they talked about mercy as being something that you would feel in your gut. So the, the point is, Paul is saying that we should, we should feel deeply for each other. Some of your translations will word it compassion. We're to have compassion for each other. We are not, we are not unaffected. We're not disconnected. We weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Our lives are to be so closely bound together that we feel each other's pain. And we have to put that on. That means this is something we have to pursue. The second word that he uses is the word kindness. And this word was used to describe wine that had grown mellow with age. It had lost its bite. It had lost its harshness. And that's what Paul's saying. We should be in our relationships with each other. There should be a tenderness in how we relate to each other. We shouldn't be harsh. We shouldn't be biting. And then the third word is humility. Humility. And, and I guess to sum up humility, it means that we, we don't go through life with self at the center. Being humble doesn't mean you think lowly of yourself. Being humble just means you don't think of yourself at all. It's so easy, isn't it, to go through life where I got to make myself the source of every conversation and I got to make myself the center of all of my decisions. And Paul is saying one of the fundamental attributes you have to put on in the Christian life is you have to die to self we got to be people who can say, you know what, 
I'm, I'm willing to follow in the steps of Jesus. I'll be the one to tie the towel around my waist and I'll make this conversation me washing your feet. It doesn't have to be about me. That's humility. The next word that he uses is the word meekness. And you've heard that described before, that meekness is, is strength under control, power under control. It was used to describe a horse that could be controlled with a, a bit and a bridle. So the picture for us is that, that you, don't, you don't emotionally run wild. You can have a conversation without being offended about everything. If you don't have that, if, if you aren't, remember one of the fruits of the Spirit, part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. If you don't have that, if you go through church life with a constant chip on your shoulder, you will never be able to have the sorts of relationships that Paul's calling for here. Meekness. And then the next one is long-suffering. And it really just means long-tempered. We're to have long fuses with each other. I used the analogy last Sunday night that as Christians, we're supposed to be relationally like wet firewood. Very hard to catch on fire. We are not like gunpowder, where all it takes is the smallest spark to get us to explode. We're very hard to get angry, very hard to offend. Now let me tell you two things about all of those traits. One, every single word in that list is used somewhere else in the Bible to describe God. Okay, so all of these traits are traits that define the nature, the character of God. Specifically, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is like. So if we're wanting to be like Jesus in our relationships, this is what it looks like. Secondly, all of these traits require other people. I, I can't be kind... I can't be long-suffering all by myself. These are relational words. So if this is how I'm supposed to live as a follower of Jesus, then it's going to require me to be around other followers of Jesus. I have to know what you're going through to feel compassion. I have to step into your life to show kindness. So it's impossible to do any of this if I'm not pursuing real deep meaningful relationships so brothers and sisters the call here for us is pursue these kinds of relationships and put on these traits but remember Paul's describing these traits as the clothes that we put on you might even think about it Paul's describing these traits as the uniform that we wear well what do you wear a uniform for if you watch football yesterday why do those guys have uniforms on? Why do they have on helmets and shoulder pads? Is it because they look so good? No, they wear it because there's work to do, right? They wear a helmet to, to keep their skull intact and their teeth in place. You don't wear steel-toed boots because they're fashionable. You wear them because there's work to do. Well, Paul's telling us to put on these traits because there's work to do in our relationships. What's the work? Here's the work. Notice the two one another commands in verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a, a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Do you see the, the two jobs he's given us here? The work, we bear with one another and we forgive one another. But bearing with one another 
is mainly about annoyances, and forgiving one another is mainly about sins. And bearing with one another means we, we put up with each other. We extend grace to each other. Listen, I don't know if you've realized this about yourself. We're all weird in some way. All of us. We all have idiosyncrasies that annoy other people. If no one has told you this lately, you can be unbelievably irritating sometimes. That's true of all of us. And what Paul is telling us here is, we have to extend each other grace. We bear with each other. We don't let little personality quirks and, and weird idiosyncrasies in people's lives rub us the wrong way. We hang in there with each other. That's bearing with one another. When, when I first got to Deanwood, there was an older couple who were members here. This was, they haven't been here for a long time now. But they were members here when I first came, and I remember being at a deacon's meeting within the first few weeks, and one of the deacons telling me, we were talking about this couple because I just met them, and he, him telling me that this couple had actually, this was their third time being members at Deanwood, that they had been members here, and then they had gotten offended by somebody in the church, and so they had left. And then when that person they got offended at finally moved, they came back and joined again. And then they stayed here till they got offended by somebody else, and then they left again. Until that person they got offended at left, and then they came back and joined again. And you might guess, it didn't take long after I was here, they got offended again and, and left again. That, that's the opposite of what it means to bear with one another. It means that we live in such a way so that we intentionally, and listen, it takes intentionality to do this. We intentionally bind our lives together with the people of God, and we hang in there with each other. We bear with one another, and not only do we bear with one another, we forgive one another. Because not only are we all annoying, but we're all sinners. And if you bind your life together with other sinners, it's only a matter of time before one of those sinners sins against you. It's only a matter of time before you hear that somebody gossiped about you. Somebody spoke rudely to you. Somebody you feel like lied to you. And I'll tell you what the old you would do. The old you would hold on to that forever. The old you would keep a running tab of every single time you were wronged. And the old you would figure out a way to get vengeance. Maybe your particular brand of getting vengeance is the cold shoulder. You, you would get vengeance by giving that person the cold shoulder for the next four weeks. Or you, you would get vengeance by giving them a piece of your mind. Or you'd get vengeance by writing some veiled post on social media. Or, or you would get vengeance by talking to other people about what a scoundrel you thought this person was. That's how the old you would have done it. But you're not the old you. And we're called to live differently. We're called to forgive. Forgiveness means you don't have to have your pound of flesh. We make the decision that we're not going to hold it against the other person. I mean, you realize, don't you? The only way you and I could possibly have the kinds of relationships, the, the only way this church can be the sort of community that God calls us to is if we are regularly asking for forgiveness and if we are eager to dish out forgiveness. If we are stingy with forgiveness, it'll be a fractured, divisive, this person won't sit on that side because they've been mad at that person for the last four years. 
what a blight on the name of God. We got to be folks who give forgiveness. And I know the immediate reaction by some to that is, but you don't know what that person did to me. How am I supposed to forgive them? And thankfully, Paul gives us an answer, doesn't he? Here's how you're supposed to forgive them. As Christ forgave you. I don't know. I don't know what they've done to you. But I do know what we've all done to Christ. Here's the fact of the matter. My life has been one long chain of sins against God. That's my life. That there have been times in my life where I have confessed something to the Lord, asked for forgiveness, in my heart, genuinely repented, and then 48 hours later, found myself struggling with the same sin I just confessed. I have found myself sinning against the Lord over and over and over and over again so that my life has incurred a genuine debt. God owes me wrath. He owes me judgment. That's what I deserve from God. But Jesus went to the cross to pay that debt for me. He took the wrath that should fall on me. He took the judgment that should be poured out on me instead. Which means that through Jesus, my sin debt has been wiped clean. God doesn't hold it against me anymore. God has wiped that sin completely off the books. And Jesus is saying that's how we're called to treat each other. We're to be eager forgivers. I don't have to make you pay for your sins against me because I know that those sins have already been paid for in Jesus. I don't feel like justice isn't going to be served if I don't make you pay because I know there's a Savior who took that payment in full. So we're free to forgive. So Paul says, bear with one another, forgive one another. And then look at verse 14. We'll stop with this one. He says, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now that phrase, above all these, it could be worded, and some of your translations will word it this way, it could be worded over all these over all these put on love. And I think that's the best wording because I think Paul is sticking with the clothing metaphor that he's been giving. And he is saying, over all of these other things put on love. And in that world, of course, you would have all sorts of different items of clothing. You would have your undergarment and your cloak and your robe. But then there would be one last thing you would put on that would bind it all together. There would be some sort of sash or some sort of belt you would put on that would hold everything else in place. So it's like Paul is saying, put on tender mercies and put on kindness. And put... But what holds all of this stuff in place is love. So we love each other. Love is what holds these traits together. Love is what holds God's community together. So let's love each other. Now, I, I can't say that without thinking of John's words in 1 John 3. Do you remember where John says, um, let us not love in word and in speech but in deed and in truth. In other words, it is a lot easier to preach a sermon about forgiving people. It's a lot easier to preach a sermon about it than it is to actually do the work of forgiving. 
It's a lot easier to take notes and write about we're to treat each other like family than it is to actually open up my life and invite people in and treat them like family. But that's what God is calling for. Man, some of you, you are struggling with identity. Where do I belong? Who are my people? Because you've never, you've never started viewing church as that. You've never actually opened your life up to the people of God and said, hey, I need brothers and sisters. I need fathers and mothers. Let's love each other. Let's pray together.